You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to SecondCity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. My guest on the pod is Bruce Jackson, who is Associate General Counsel for Microsoft and a former entertainment attorney. I was born in Brooklyn. He studied law at Georgetown University and spent a decade working in entertainment law with some of the top music talent in the country. Uh, He has served on Microsoft's Diversity Committee since 2001 and has received Microsoft's Diversity Award. He is also an advisory board member of the National Association of Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms and the Hip Hop Museum. He's got a great new book. It's called Never Far From Home, My Journey from Brooklyn to Hip Hop, Microsoft, and the Law. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the Jackson, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Uh, I, I really enjoyed your book. And in the prologue of your new book, you write, quote, if you're uncomfortable with who and what you are, you want to pretend it never happened. But as far as I'm concerned, everything I've accomplished grew from the roots of the city and projects and distressed neighborhoods that raised me, end quote. And I'm curious if that is a realization brought on by age or something you've understood and carried with you for a while now. It's something that I carried with me for a while. I think yeah. it's necessary. It's one of the reasons why I always want to go back to the community for that very reason to try to inspire the next generation. So where do you think you got that gene? Because not everyone has that. Um, I, I saw enough inequities within my community, right? And when I started to get opportunities... And I realize why others have not because of systemic racism that exists, yeah. right? And it's not something that should remain the way it is. It should have changed years ago. And the fact that it hasn't, there's no secret. My philosophy yeah. is no one's smarter than someone else. 
is all about resources and environment. In fact, if you take someone out of the inner city and put them in an affluent area as a kid, that kid would do extremely well. And if yeah. you take someone out of the an affluent area and put them in the inner city, they'll struggle. So we know the answer. So why can't we just fix it? I love it. Um, I also, you very early in the book talk about um, your mom. Uh, yes. Can you tell us about Flora May? Uh, my mother, she was the anchor of the household, right? She was single parent, raising six kids. Um, she worked in both a glass and a peanut factory, and that certainly wasn't enough to raise our family financially. So we're on public assistance my entire life. But uh, nonetheless, she supported us and gave us all she had. And it was an inspiration for me to move forward, right? When there was, there was times in my path where I wanted to quit. But I draw on her struggles and the struggles of my grandmother and my aunt to carry me forward. There's a line that you say in the book, which is a very important improv adage. So before a cast of The Second City gets on stage or if I'm co-leading a workshop with someone, we always, before we go on stage, we tap each other and say, I got your back. And one of the things you say is that we had each other's backs. Absolutely. They certainly have my back. I think financially, there's not much they can do no. you know, in my academic journey, but they did give everything they could. Right. And they made some sacrifice because they were all on public assistance as well. So their assistance financially would be basically give me some of the pittance that they got from the government, as well as food stamps. Right. So they took away food from their table just to make sure that I had enough to survive. So it's all about support. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, again, there's this duality at play, right? You, uh, and one of the things you say is family provided security and the illusion of safety. So I want to explore that a little bit because, like, you weren't necessarily in a safe place, but you were able to sort of get through, obviously, because you had some sense of, like, you'd wake up in the morning and, you know, be able to do what you're going to do. Right. No, I think when you grow up in the inner city, it's, it's not a safe environment. Um, but I always remind people we felt safer around those who actually committed the crimes than we did the police officers who were there to protect us. Right. So it was a community. So we certainly felt safe in that environment. I, too, this is in an early uh, uh, chapter. You talk, you say, quote, at the age of six, I barely noticed the tension by 10. I could feel it in my bones with regard to sort of authority figures and in particular the law. And you talk about the law in the title of your book, and I suspect you're talking about two aspects of the law, one in terms of your early experiences and then your own sort of uh, legal career and what what you did in the law. I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's all about when you're young, I was able to witness police brutality within my community. In fact, when I wanted to become a lawyer early on, it's because I saw Perry Mason, TV (laughs) TV lawyer. But then later, that basically developed into wanting to be a criminal lawyer because of the inequities that I saw take place in the community. And at 10, which is why I ran from the police officer, because people ask, why would I run at the age of 10? Is because I noticed what they have done within my community. Yeah. And that, as we talked about the, right at the beginning, it's like that, that hasn't changed. And in fact, it's just on steroids now because we can see it in a way that we didn't before because we didn't have these cameras that we're walking around with. Right. I hate to say it, I'm numb to it, but it's, it's the reality. I've seen it multiple times, so I'm not shocked by it. Hopefully we can get to the point where we actually change that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was kind of interesting and I wasn't expecting it that you sort of had this um, uh, dalliance with the theater. Uh, and I'm, you know, I, I grew up in the theater and, and you, you like sort of like you did some acting. 
in high school. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think, Kelly, you're surprised and many of my friends who read the book will be surprised because I yeah. kept it a secret up until this point. No, I think the reality is when you grow up in the inner city, what we spent most of our time doing was playing basketball, right? There's a basketball yeah. court throughout the entire city. And all you needed at that point was a $10 basketball. But what I would do, because I was interested in the theaters, I would sneak away by telling my friends I'm going to visit my grandmother. And I would take acting, singing, and dance lessons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it got to, and you're right, I performed at Lincoln Center. I did several performances, but it came to a point at the high school, what's next? And what I kind of regret, I didn't bet on myself, right? Mm-hmm. What I did was look at other people's failures because many people I know who wanted to pursue it, they were either working as a bartender or a waiter or waitress in a restaurant. So other people's failure dictated what I want to do. So my lesson in life is don't look at other people's failure as yeah. whether or not you should move forward because you can transcend that. But like you say too, you, you all this stuff is the the stuff that became you. And uh, what I know is tons of lawyers take improv classes because they they realize that they have to present, that right. they have to, you know, they have to perform, yep. uh they have to convince, all those things and like you know, acting, improv, all that stuff is practice for that. No, it is practice for that, but that certainly wasn't my intent. No, that <laughs> had a love and a passion for it. I just didn't wanted to take the financial risk and to pursue it at that point. But now in retrospect, knowing what I know about myself, I think I would have been extremely good at it, but I just yeah. couldn't afford to take that risk at that point. Interesting reading this. Cause we're, I'm the youngest of six. Uh, we're close in age. I think, uh, I, but I grew up, I grew up in Kenilworth, Illinois, which at, when I was growing up there was the richest white suburb in, you know, different lifestyle, different lifestyle. But um, I think the book, the book is really is to inspire not just African-Americans, right? I think that's oh. what's miss it. It's to really inspire people in rural America who have obstacles, immigrants who have obstacles, women, members of the LGBTQ plus community. It's about trying to create a level playing field for people who are in America and abroad, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. And, and, and also just being a human in, in this particular country, in this world. And you talked about that gig you had in the basement at Chase. And I remember the gig I had at the Jewel Food Store where I walked in. I'm like, all right, like I can do this. I right. don't want to do this. And that was a powerful motivator for me to take a chance on myself and say, I think I can make a, a life in theater, which right. is not something that any reasonable human being should be saying. Right. I think you had a choice, right? I think my... I had a choice. Joining the co-op co-op program is a program that I participate in high school where you work one week and go to school one week. So it's a poor high school to begin with. So just imagine for a moment, I'm attending a poor high school academically and I'm going to school part time. So it was a great choice for me to keep me off the streets criminally, because absent that, I would have probably been doing something different. But academically, it was just a poor decision. Right. I wasn't prepared. Um, so that's how I look at it. The, it was a negative choice from an academic perspective or from a criminal perspective. It certainly served the purpose and kept me off the streets. Hmm. Um, you also interviewed your dad for this book when he was 91. Yeah. Um, and that was not that that you were not necessarily raised by him completely. I mean, he was part of the picture, but not the major part of the picture. So I'm curious from now, from this perspective, you as an adult sitting down with your dad and interviewing for this, that had to be hard. 
It was extremely hard, but you know something, Kelly, I'm glad I did it, right? At 92, yeah. that was the first time my dad and I really had a discussion. Wow. Um, so, and it kind of, I was healed from that. So I kind of really forgave him after understanding mm. what he went through. He didn't know how to be a father, right? He grew right. up in an orphanage, right? Um, he did not know. No one took care of him. The streets did. Mm. And so he didn't really know how to do it. And I excuse him for it. So he and I have a great relationship now, right? He apologized multiple times, but I accept it. I think it was, it was difficult for him. I think that, you know, at the, what I've learned as I've gotten older, which is the, the apology part of it, because you did nothing wrong there, there, you know, there, and, and, but the forgiveness part of it is, is for you, <laughs> you know, That's that, true. that, that is that thing. Like, look, I, you don't want to walk around with that. Like, and can you not walk around with that? And and then if that can also have a side benefit to another human in the world who was hurt and hurt people, hurt people, that feels like a net positive for the world. No, no, I think it was. I think, and you're right, I did carry it with me for years. It took, now I'm glad I was able to do it while he's still here, mm-hmm. right? I, it's pretty good, man. 91 years, that's a long time to wait to really time. have a serious discussion to heal some wounds with anyone. I'm fortunate that he was around for me to do it. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, too, because you ended up going to Hofstra and uh, you say, quote, 21 miles. That's the distance between my grandmother's home in Brooklyn and Hempstead, Long Island, site of the main campus of Hofstra University. And you say Hofstra might as well have been Vermont. It's only 21 miles away, but it was that different, right? It was another world. Absolutely. It's totally another world, right? I grew up in the inner city in urban settings and Hofstra was a more of a rural suburban area. So it was totally different. And not just from that standpoint, just in terms of the populations of students at Hofstra. Hofstra is a predominantly white institution. So just having to be in that situation was totally different. And then if you go a little deeper, most of the students were well-educated, not smarter. As I said, I don't think people are smarter. People just start out differently and have resources that other people don't have, which which uh, the system, I say it has failed us, but the system has worked. It's worked to perfection. Constantly suppress a group of people. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and in terms of your, because you did well there, but but it wasn't a perfect run, and you had you know like some you know some you know run ins and and other things. But I ma- I imagine in retrospect, it also taught you to negotiate with that frankly corrupt system. Right. I, I think that academically, I did extremely well. One yeah. of the instances you're referring to is accounting. People always question, why did I have this aptitude for accounting? Because I was doing extremely well. The university then asked me to tutor the entire university. So here it is. You have a little black kid from the inner city ghetto tutoring everyone in the university when it came to accounting. And so what happened was essentially the process was that people will sign up, schedule time, which you would tutor them. Yeah. And once they come, you'll get paid. But what was happening, people were signing up and I was setting time aside and they weren't showing up. Uh-huh. And so I then went around campus and had them sign the timesheet. Uh-huh. And, and that was a mistake that I didn't really totally think out other than the fact that you were being disruptive and disrespectful to my schedule and messing with my money, to be quite honest with you. So it escalated up to the, the provost of the university and the president. But I think what ultimately happened, that's when I realized privilege. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, pro- I was the top African-American accounting major to school and certainly one of the tops in the university. The provost didn't want to kick me out. Wow. So he pretty much handed it down to the dean who threatened 
to kick me out for two months. So I was just sitting there waiting for him to render a decision my senior year. And I had the support of the student body, white and black, right? Saying yeah. don't Bruce out and some some faculty members say don't do that. And so that's when I understand privilege. And that's the reason I didn't get kicked out. If I was a poor student, I would have gotten kicked out. Hmm. Uh, and so what I learned from that is you never put yourself in a position where someone else has control over your life. And I kind of use that principle, a guiding principle to carry me forward. Never. That's hard to do, man. Right. I mean, it's hard, but I had too much to lose. I couldn't afford yeah. to have it then or now. All right. Too many yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I mean, it, it's, it's anytime. I mean, this is the thing about ethics and principles. It, it's like, we can talk a lot about them, but if you actually want to live by them, um, that's not a popular position. No, I would agree. Absolutely not. And, and, and that, and that's a real issue though, because it's like, these things are hugely important. We should be talking about morals and ethics and, and all of that. But the reality is when you, and, and the, you have these, this stuff happens to you throughout the book. I mean, this in, in almost every iteration, which is a fascinating life. And I, but we're going to get to sort of music and, and some of the other stuff, but like you're at that crowd where you're trying to help people and, Absolutely. and, and even the playing field and yep. even that, because that is like zagging for someone else. It's, it's, it's a, it's a pain point. No, absolutely. I think you're right. It is, but you have to manage it, right? Mm-hmm. In my world, there was no option to fail. Uh, I would love, I want to talk about your experience at Georgetown and in particular, the incident with, uh, with the recruiter for Arthur Anderson. Cause I think that's a really like amazing. Point. Yeah. Yep. Talk about that. Well, after graduating from, well, upon graduating from Hofstra University, at that point, there was the big eight accounting firm. That was the big four. So I was offered positions for almost all of them. And so I decided on Arthur Anderson. So at that point, the recruiter was telling me what the package is. We love to have you. This is the financial package. And ultimately, she said, well, what do you really want to do? I said, go to law school. And what she said, I didn't really know, it was an African-American recruiter. She said, don't accept this package, because if you do you're going to continue to work for us for years. Um, if you want to go to law school, pursue law school. And at that point I did. And that's why I went to Georgetown. But then before I even decided to go to Georgetown, I didn't want to go to DC. So that's why I think people can come in your life who don't necessarily look like you. So that was an African-American woman recruiting me for Arthur Anderson saying, don't take this off or go to law school. And then I didn't want to go to Georgetown after that. So I went to Brooklyn law school. And I spoke to the dean maybe two weeks before school start, months after the application deadline. And he said, listen, we'll accept you at this point. School's going to start in two weeks, but we don't have any money. He said, but if I was you, um, you don't want to have any regrets. I would not come to Brooklyn Law School. You should just find the money and go to Georgetown. So, again, intervention, right? Throughout your life, you need Mm -hmm. people to step in, mentors who would play a tremendous role in your life. And I was fortunate to have that. Yeah, and also required you to listen to them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question about it. Uh, so you're, you couldn't afford rent to stay in school, um, and you lived with your aunt for the last two years of law school? Absolutely. You got it right. What was that like? Um, it, was, it was a great experience, right? She was much older. She At that point, she was in her 80s, mm-hmm. and basically it was free rent. And sometimes I'll say free rent in exchange for entertaining her after I came home <laughs> at maybe 11 or 12 o'clock at night, she would be up, food yeah. ready, 
And then she would say, Junior, that's what she called me, sit down at the piano. So I would sit at the piano and play songs and she would sing. Right. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I would join her singing. So it was it was paying for my keeps pretty much. But it was a great experience. And we developed. Yeah. What, I mean, great, again, great relationship. Age, right. What, yep. what a great experience. And, and she fed you. Right. You got she fed me and she she was knowledgeable. Right. She had a life mm-hmm. experiences. So she passed some of that on to me. So it was great. Uh, then you had an inter- internship at a, a, a prominent a Silverstein and, and, and Mullins. Um, and there's there's an incident there, too. Yeah, Silverstein and Mullins uh, was a prominent tax firm. And by that time, I took maybe six tax courses in the JD program, which is somewhat unusual before I went to the LLM program. And so we had some summer program. I was one of many summer associates. And we went to dinner at a private club in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. with other partners. And I don't know what happened. He was talking to Silverstein, talking to one summer associate. And he turned to me and said, and I don't think when I reflect upon it today, whether it was intentional, I think it was more unconscious bias. Sure. Um, He turned around and said, Bruce, you may know something about the ghetto. And everyone at the table was just sitting there waiting for me to explain. (laughs) I think it was unconscious bias all around. Right. I don't think it was willful intent. And so what I do, which is what I always do. So I don't react quickly. I paused. And I said to myself, I recall saying, I'm not going to have this job. Hmm. And then I looked at Mr. Silverstein and I did. I said, Mr. Silverstein, I don't know anything about the ghetto. If you read my book, you know, I can I could have told him everything he needed to know. Yeah, no, no, no. You know all about the ghetto. Right. I, I know. I know a lot about it. I could sit here and tell all of you folks who don't look like me about the ghetto, but I'm not going to do that. And then I said, perhaps, you know, more about the ghetto. And why don't you share what you know? with everyone at the table. So at that point, everyone was shocked and everyone dropped their head. And within two minutes, we were heading back to the office. And by the time I got there, everyone apologized. Hmm. And at the end of the summer, they had, I know they want to make offers, but at that point, I, like I said, I took six tax courses at the JD program. I was an accounting major. I just knew the stuff really well. Yeah. And so I said, if they're going to make anyone an offer, they're not going to get around not making me an offer. Yeah. And they did. And ultimately, they made me an offer. And my friend said, I know you're not going to go there. And I said, well, well, else am I going to go as an African-American tax attorney? There's just very few of us, period. I'll be the only one wherever I go. So I went there for two years before I decided to leave and come back to New York, leave D.C. and come to New York and practice uh, entertainment law. Yeah. So how I mean, that feels like a jump. Like, how, how do you get into how do you even get into entertainment law for, from that world um I, I just met some people and I, there was an opportunity for me to work for a firm but it was pretty much an internship mm-hmm. at the time i left the silverstein and mullins firm i was at the top salary level yeah summer associate and then the time i took the job as an entertainment attorney intern i was only making six thousand dollars a year oh, so what i had to do i decided to make up for the difference in salary or to make it comfortable for me to live in New York, I taught graduate tax one. Mm-hmm. And then I called my mother in the project, which is public housing, and said, I need to live with you. Mm-hmm. And she said, I don't know why you want to do that, but you certainly can come back home. And I lived there for two years while I developed entertainment practice. Mm-hmm. And I guess the big thing is is signing Pete Rock. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did work with uh, Puffy and Tony Dof at first, but Pete Rock well, was... That, that's pretty big, too. Major. Pete Rock was my... Fr- major client at that point he was bigger 
at that yeah. point. Right? He was probably one of the top two producers in the country. And so that led to me getting a lot of other artists as well. Um, but and that was a fraught period, right? I mean, in terms of the the that in the hip hop culture and East oh. Coast and West Coast and all that. I mean, you're yeah, that's the epicenter of wow, a a period. It was a it was a dangerous period. I think one, the nineties were the greatest music, right? Sure. Um that came out, hip hop R and B. But I think it was a dangerous moment. You're right. At that point, it was a lot of it was violence. So it was a lot of crime going on, people getting killed in the hip hop arena at that point. So it was not quite safe. But as a lawyer, I kind of kept my way kept from all of those sort of activities. I stayed away from it. Well, I guess, too, your experience, having seen all that growing up, that when you saw it at the sort of like like people putting guns on tables or whatever, it's like it felt to me like you knew instinctually like, nope, I've spent my life saying no to that and getting away from that, that that, that that's not going to change now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One of my clients, because they were loyal to me because I supported them. You're right. What he did was put several guns on the table and said, Bruce. I'm trying to protect you, but I'm not going to always be around you. So pick up one of these guns so you can protect yourself. And my first instinct was, I'm not touching those guns. I have no idea where they came from, right? Or what's mm-hmm. what's associated with those guns. So I stayed away from him and said, no, nah, I don't think I need that. But you're right. But that was not, that was his intent to really say, hey, we like you. We appreciate you. It's dangerous right now in the music industry. You're around all the hip hop artists. And it's just not a safe time. So this is how you protect yourself in the event something happens. But and I appreciate the offer, but I certainly right. accept it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, 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 I have a distinct memory, and I, I can't name. I won't name names here, but um, uh, producers of very major television comedy shows. You know, in the '90s, here when I'm producing, coming in the office and laying out a bunch of cocaine or whatever, and just being like, "That's not my. That's not my scene." That's and in part too, because like. I, I mean, I saw um, I saw what happened to Chris Farley. Like, you know, like I, I was friends with Chris. I saw what happened, and, I, and it wasn't just him; and it was other people. And it's like, no, that, that that that's dangerous in terms of this arena. And there was something interesting you wrote in the book, and it very much relates to uh, a, a, a thing that we sort of have in common, which is at a certain point being sort of executive supporting artists, right? Just generally speaking. Right. And you write, quote, if my clients were successful, then I'd be successful. It didn't work the other way around. The truth is that's the nature of entertainment law. It is built on the backs of the artists. Attorneys have notoriously big egos and they, we, don't often like to admit it, but it's the client who makes the attorney. And that's not just true in law. I think that is true in the entire industry. Oh, I think that's always true. Sometimes attorneys think it's about them and it's like your clients are important. They help build your career and you leverage them and their names to get other clients, right? So no, it's no question about it. I spoke to Pete maybe two weeks ago. Hmm. I helped him out with the matter. And I constantly, whenever I talk to him, I say, I thank you for doing what you did back then, because not for you, I wouldn't be where I am today. And he wasn't that much younger than me at that point, right? When mm-hmm. that decision was made that I would represent him. Mm-hmm. You talked too in the book about diversity initiatives. And this is such a... um Oh God, it's fraught on so many different levels, right? I mean, you you uh, on the positive level, you have a focus on like that that like you've never had before, um, which is great. Uh, you have academic communities also coming in and saying these diversity initiatives don't work, um, and then how how do we make make them work? Um, which also, you know, in some ways, I think lets people you know off 
when they, they shouldn't be let off with regard to that. So sitting where you sit, and I mean, you know, you you're you're still at Microsoft, right? Yes, I am. Yeah. So you're you know, you're at a very big global corporation and 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 that that's done some and you've been involved in some of the work there. Can you talk to us a little bit about like what doesn't work, what does work, wh- where's your brain when it comes to this writ large in terms of diversity efforts inside corporate America? I, I think it has to be intentional diversity efforts. And what I mean by that, Kelly, is there's a lot of diversity activity and it's just activity. And to me, that's noise. Uh, my premise, I always start with what results have you made? And if you made positive results, now let's analyze the activity, Right. And then if it's great, then perhaps we should see how we can tweak it to improve it so you can have greater impact. But I think, yeah, I think a lot of companies are just lip service, but a lot of activities that they want to basically put in a box in a bowl and say, hey, this is the things that we're doing, as opposed to really looking at what people are doing. And when we look at diversity, particularly in legal profession, for the past 20 years, it's been pretty flat. Yeah. And what we tend to do, I'm saying the industry, is say, okay, let's figure out why we're not growing this and their first reaction is let's create a white paper to figure out why mm-hmm. and all that does is push it out even further right yep. and my position is you know what let's stop all this let's hire women and minorities and let's promote women and minorities using the same standards we do with caucasian men and you may say well what's that um people are promoted based on potential but yep. when it comes to women and minorities you got to be buttoned up and kelly you may say bruce what do you mean by buttoned up Simply that all the I's have to be dotted, T's crossed. And oftentimes you got to be in a position for a period of time to show the leaders that you can do it. And I think the whole idea of promoting people based on potential is fine, but let's just uniformly apply that standard. Uh, One of the things that used to be my job uh, here when we'd be hiring new sort of executive talent is I'd always be the last meeting for cultural fit. Right. I, I have no bigger regret in my career than like having pride in, in, in terms of what, what because cultural fit at the end of the day meant that this person like liked the same music as me, you right. know, or, or looked like me or could talk like me or whatever, whatever that. And, and, and what I understand now, having been through all of this and, and, and life experiences and all of it is it's like it, that's exactly what you don't want what you want is people who will challenge you, people who think mm-hmm. differently. But, and, and it's just like it's like, um, uh, the, the the baseball team, right? It's like yep. you're not going to have all like power hitters. This makes no, Absolutely. Makes no sense. Absolutely. And that's the same in a band, and that's the same like across anything. So why Absolutely. would it be true in corporate America? Um, it, it is because people is. just want to hire people who look like them. But I, I think you're right, and people say the whole thing of in corporate America and business now. People say bring your authentic self, and people say, can you bring your authentic self? I say, mm-hmm. well. You have to really study the environment or the entity that you're associated with. Some companies are at different places in that journey. But I said a lot of companies are just getting used to the idea of hiring and seeing black faces, Hispanic faces, women. Um, now, if we all bring our authentic self, some places that may be just too much. Shocking, right? Mm. And what I try to do is flip it to those who are in the majority. I said, well, let's assume, for example, if this is an African-American law firm and you're Caucasian. And what you're going to do is what people ask us to do is to assimilate. You may say, well, I don't know if I want to assimilate into that black culture and that law firm. I want to just bring myself. Well, that's exactly what we want to do. Right. Right. So what you got to do is sometime bring people in the majority in the position where they're in the minority 
and ask them what will make them feel comfortable when they're in that minority position. And then Mm -hmm. say, okay, that's what people in a minority position feel. And we want the same thing you want. I think, too, we've done ourselves a disservice with with misunderstanding the idea of authentic self. Because by reading your book, you have many selves that presented themselves differently depending on the context you're in, whether you're with your friends, whether you're right, relatives, like we all do that. There's like, that, right. that, that is not a hypocrisy. That's not that. So, so you, I'm going to act a little bit different in the office, just period. Well, every, everyone, yeah. everyone does. And so now that, that again, there, the, the lack of tolerance, I mean, this is the big problem, right? Is you want a sense of psychological safety for everyone so that you're tolerating ideas that are different than yours and, and, and not just even tolerating, like exploring ideas that are different than yours. And if you, if you don't have, I guess I put it this way, it's never going to exist everywhere all the time. If you can have it on your team, I think you're probably going to be okay. Right. Absolutely. And that's what I've always managed to do with my yeah. team. Yeah. Is it well, it's interesting. It's again, looking at, I was very interested in the book. It was not what I expected in terms of, of, of what I was going through uh, as I was preparing for it and then reading it. But I think this, this idea that you talk about um, uh, with regard to never far from home is that that home travels with you. Oh, absolutely. It's who I am, right? Yeah. It's who I am. And part of the title was never far from home because physically Microsoft office is a mile away. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's a totally different world. Right. We talk about Hofstra being 40 minutes away from where my grandmother lived, but where I lived and where Microsoft is, is much less than that, but it's a totally different world. I mean, I close billion dollar deals at the Microsoft office, but I can walk and I do oftentimes where I grew up and it's the inner city, right? Where people still yeah. smoke. So no, it's, it's definitely, and it's close to my heart because I have family and friends who still live there, right? Mm-hmm. So physically I'm close. And just from an emotional standpoint, I'm close. And I go back to try to inspire them to reach their potential. If not them, certainly their kids in the next generation. There's a couple of arrest stories that you have in the book uh, that are really upsetting. <laughs> um, and, and, and almost more so in the way you calmly talk through them or write through no. them which I imagine is how you were behaving at the time because you kind of knew what the, you knew what the system was doing. Absolutely. I mean, it is what it is until it isn't. So that's how I deal with it. People say, why aren't you upset? Because that's how it is. That's how I grew up. I know how the system works. So yeah, you're talking about a situation, several situations. Mm -hmm. When I was 10 years old, um, one of the things that my mother taught us when we moved from Brooklyn to Manhattan was how to travel by train. And I may have made this trip alone 12 times. And on this particular time, I was taking a train and the cops looked at me and someone was saying I committed some something. And what I do is what every 10 year old kid in the inner city would do based upon our trust. We ran and my, my running was jumping on the track, stepping over the third rail and running from one tunnel on the ground station to the next station. And then when I got to the other station, that's when the cops arrested me. And, and that's just part of it. Right. I think the crime really is. When they handcuffed me, took me to the prison and handcuffed me to the brown chair and try to get me to confess to committing a crime that I didn't commit with the understanding that if you commit, if you say you did it, you get to go home. Um, and for some reason, the 10 year old black boy never 
confess to committing that crime, which I didn't commit. And two weeks later, my mother called. They said they found the person. So the lesson that should be learned from that is when you see a kid that's 9, 10, 11 year old run, he or she is not always guilty. Right. And when they confess to a crime, they, they may not be guilty. They may just want to go home. And unfortunately, that same thing happens today. And one prime example we all have to look at is the Central Park Five. We all rushed the judgment when the five boys were accused of touching a Caucasian woman. Right. And they ended up serving time. And years later, it was determined they didn't do it because they confessed because they, too, wanted to go home. Um, so there's some lessons learned. Right. And it's, it saddens me that it still happens today. To people. Right. And this is I mean, and I know that you, you talk in the book about the various elders talking to you about this, your dad in particular. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder with your kids, what was that conversation? Similar, different? Uh, no, my kids are very aware of the inequities that exist. I mean, I'll share my experience with them and say it's the same mm-hmm. and, and impose upon them that there's an obligation for them like me to help others. They are they are who they are because of me and I am because of my parents. So it's all about trying to bring people up. Right. And they're sort of young adults now, right? Yeah, they are. Yep. All right. So <laughs> my son's 25. Uh I, I know of no books about how to parent an adult. <laughs> I don't know about you, but not it's, at it's, all. right. There's not like, oh no. my God. It's You're going to so... make a lot of mistakes, right? We learn as we go. It's worse. I got to be honest. Like at least like when I, when they were younger, I like, I, I kind of knew when I'd made a mistake or whatever, but it's like generally like here, get, go here, <laughs> you know, and now it's that very real thing. I, I don't know what to tell you, bud. I mean, like, you know, do your best. Nah, nah, absolutely. absolutely. You'll prevail. Just fight through it. Yeah, yeah, that's what you have to do. All right, we always end the podcast by asking our guests for a yes and story. And the idea here is that, you know, in behavioral economics, for example, we understand the default position of most individuals is say no or do nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's why people don't take chances or don't go for their dream or or whatever. And the idea of yes and in improv, which kind of started out as just like how we can make a funny comedy scene, ends up also being about how do we create something out of nothing with individuals which, spoiler alert, is kind of what happens to you through your entire career, um, especially when you're making, when you're a maker of some sort. So I'm wondering if in your, you know, uh, and, and I can think of a million from the book, but a, a yes and story to end the podcast. Let me let me think about that for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Yes and story. I want to make sure I'm clear. So just go over it again so I'm clear in terms of what your yes and is. Yeah. So I, the examples I can think of, for you, certainly with the with the recruiters, you know, like someone telling you to like, basically, you know, you, you said no to Georgetown. Right. And, and the way you got to that yes and was someone else coming in and being like, man, like do it. And then and then and so, yes, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to have to stay with relatives. You know, that that certainly would be one. I don't know what brought you to write the book. But I could imagine that would very easily be a no, given you got a job to do. It's a lot of work. This is going to be a lot of opening up. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll say what got me to write the book was entertainment clients, right? Said, hey, I have to show a different path. And I think it was no. And I said, mm. I'll tell you this now. And the yes became yes. And, and to be vulnerable about it and to be able to expose the truth, right? Because what I get was if you're going to tell this story, you have to tell the truth. And there's some risk associated with telling the truth. So I think your initial reaction is 
no, I'm not going to do it. Maybe some consequences, right? People will look at you differently if you're truly vulnerable, if you truly reveal your life. And people may look at me differently. And they, I would say the yes portion of it would is basically, you know what? That's fine and well. Uh-huh. But ultimately, the goal is to inspire other people and help change this world to make uh-huh. it a better place for all of us to live. Yeah. Because the book is hopeful, and and the book is, I mean, you you strike. I mean, the 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 tone, the the stories, the all the ideas they point to positivity, to hope, to change, to all the things. Because, like you know, in 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 an, in very easily, in a you know, had you done one thing differently, there's no way we're sitting here having this conversation. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and that's the story I tell people. And part of that would be doing the wrong thing, but having people intervene at the right time. My father wasn't in my life, but one of the interventions that he did was that if you keep stealing and selling these products, i.e. papers around the community, Mm -hmm. I'm going to turn you in. And at that point, I don't think he realized the impact that he was making on other people's financial. That's why my friends was like, let's go after your father, because who is he to you anyway? He's not around. Uh, But I thank him for intervening at that point. Because ultimately, we would have got caught and I would have went to jail for that. Right. So it's people being at your life at the right time. And for me, it's really just being blessed. The book is called Never Far From Home, My Journey from Brooklyn to Hip Hop, Microsoft and the Law. Bruce Jackson, thanks for coming on the pod. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Bye bye. The Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
survive.